This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. We've got a cracker of a show lined up. I'm in the studio with Dr Sharma. Good morning. Good morning. Um, we're talking all things uh, gut health today. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. we've got a couple of cracking guests we'll uh, introduce in just a moment. Um, but um, to allow as much time for that as possible, just so we go straight into a couple of news items. <laughs> I woke up to the news about another um, incident of violence in our hospitals, this time in Sydney at um, Royal uh, Prince Alfred. Lolly Doc did a segment on um, some violence in accident and emergency um, last year, I think it was, and it just doesn't seem to be getting any safer for doctors. Did you catch this news item? I actually didn't. I was only found out about it very, very late, just before <laughs> we went to air. Um, it, and it, it, it's a shock. And, uh, in fact, uh, one of the articles... Uh, it just reminds me, of course, of all the uh, the other recent um, incidents that have happened, of course, with uh, neurosurgeon uh, Michael Wong yep. and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the cardiothoracic surgeon, whose name slips my mind, at Box Hill Box recently. Hill. And some, uh, you know, some so that was a King Hit incident, wasn't it? So, Correct. And that was A&E? Uh, no, that, that was just outside the hospital. Outside it happened hospital. to be a patient who was smoking and the surgeon suggested maybe you shouldn't be Maybe's smoking at the hospital. Yeah. And How dare he? Yeah. yeah. Um, and the uh, neurologist, neurosurgeon? The neurosurgeon, that, well, that I believe was just stabbing. on the wards, yeah. yeah. So that was not an accident emergency case, um, which is, you know, the, the way we traditionally tend to think about violence, especially in the accident emergency setting, is that it's occurring in, uh, it's fuelled perhaps by drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Uh, but when it's occurring, when people are just smoking outside or on the wards, it's a bit hard to make sense of that, isn't it? Yeah, well, that, that's what I first thought when I heard uh, the um, the news this morning. But it does turn out it was in the ward and uh, a woman, I don't have any more information about age or, or what she was in hospital for, um, uh, got agitated, I think was the word in the news item, and somehow ended up stabbing three nurses... Um, to what extent, I'm not clear. Um, I don't think life-threatening, but nevertheless. Um, and police were called and took four of the police to um, to suppress her, ultimately. And she's now under, you know, hospital arrest. Yeah, I think we underestimate just how dangerous working in a hospital setting can be. You know, we have this picture of it being a very loving, caring environment, which it is, but it's often when people are at their most volatile and uh, as well, and it's... You know, really, really fear for that staff. Yeah. Um, I'm not actually working in that acute medical setting anymore. Uh, as, a, in, as a general practitioner, things are a bit more you know, kind of calm. And you just remember, actually, there were quite a few times, even in my life, when I went, oh, this could get hairy. From, from a policy point of view, like, I mean, to, it's, it's a fraught one to deal with because by their nature, hospitals are places where people need quick and easy access, right? So if an emergency, you know, is called. Um, by the same token... It's that very feature of the environment that means people can move about pretty freely inside a hospital, can't they? That's exactly right. And while you can have security guards, etc., around, I mean, you know, it's it's not a prison. It's not somewhere where you're going to have the corridors just lined with staff ready to you know to kind of to, to intervene. If anything, uh, presence of people there like that can trigger some people, make them even kind of more agitated. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very very tough thing to do. And you know, when I think about what the solutions are, I think we've really got to listen to the people on the ground. 
around and yeah. the suggestions they have about these things. Because it's very easy to just kind of look from the outside and go, well, we need more police and more barricades and this and that and... You know, and but, but it's actually very difficult yeah. when you're actually in the situation yourself. Hmm. Well, that's a story that's unfolding at the moment. So hopefully those nurses are, are doing all right. Because I'm, we we also hear uh, just remind myself uh, around paramedics um, during 2018. I think there was um, quite a lot of uh, angst around the treatment of paramedics uh, on arrival at various scenes, which just doesn't add up to me, you know, in, in terms of how people <laughs> might, might, might react to You would to. never think of it, it is one of the most dangerous jobs in this country, yeah. being a paramedic. Yeah. Um, it's scary stuff. Did, um, I, did you say you had uh, an item that caught your eye? That's right, yeah, something yeah. caught my eye this week was a report published by the George Institute that ranked nutritional value of packaged foods and beverages sold in supermarkets. And they found that almost half of all processed supermarket foods can be regarded as discretionary, which is just COBRA for junk food. So half of all food is junk food. And they're just kind of calling on the governments to push nutritional standards. But what the, the interesting thing about this was they analysed things by the, the health star ratings that I think we've all kind of seen. And there's, you know, there were 33 brands with thousands of their own products that, that had these health star ratings. Um, the, the hope was that in order to make their food more attractive to, to buyers, they'll improve the quality of their food, so the health star ratings will rise. Uh, they actually found in the last year health star ratings for, for at least half of these companies actually fell. Um, so the health star ratings just did not have any effect in terms of changing the behaviour of the manufacturers to actually uh, improve the standards of their food. So they're calling upon making, firstly, that, that system mandatory, but also an overhaul of that health star rating itself because I think it's, it's pretty easy to game. You sometimes look at those four-star products and you're like, I don't know if it's four stars worth of health out of five. Yeah. I, I, the, the star rating, it's pretty problematic, isn't it? I... Mean, I <coughs> I heard somebody say that the best way uh, to determine whether or not you should buy a product from a supermarket is how colourful the packaging is. And the more colourful it is, the less likely it is to be healthy for you. It's probably just as good as guide as any. <laughs> Although, with the, uh, the, the new kind of you know, wellness organic movement, they've, they've, they've done very well to adopt this more earthy, organic kind of pastel colour. Oh, so yeah. I th- yeah, yeah. Anything can be manipulated, can't it? Well, there you just pointed out, I think, you know, there's language uh, issues around the use of the word organic or, um, you know, um, no added sugar has got, kind of got some ambiguity in it as well and, and things like that. That's part of the problem that you know, manufacturers and sellers are always... They can always kind of game the system. They, they can stay one step ahead. Yeah. Uh, but if you just return to the basics, eat you know, mostly fruit and vegetables, very diet, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah, I think the same person talking about the calorie and packaging, they said, look, just shop on the perimeters of the supermarket and you'll be fine. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. You're on Triple R Radio Therapy with myself, uh, panel B and Dr Sharma and now our um, wonderful guests uh, Dr Chamara Baznayaki is a gastroenterologist um, he's a uh, consultant at um, uh, University of Melbourne and at St Vincent's um, I think I've got that right yeah. and we've come in uh, touch with uh, Chamara via the exhibition that's being run up at um, Museums Victoria Gut Feelings, Your Mind and Your Microbes Welcome Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Um, we uh, we saw the um, promotion of the uh, of the exhibition up there, and simultaneously we're noticing in our respective social media feeds and conversations around the place that gut health is all the rage. Is that how it looks from your your end? Yeah, I mean, so 
you know, as a gastroenterologist, that's obviously all I see all day. But at the same time, and it's very ubiquitous, gut health, food, microbiome is, is this really popular topic um, for the general public. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. In fact, the topic's just exploded quite recently. I mean, I, I think a lot of health systems and cultures have had an awareness of the importance of the gut, but it seems like it's something quite recent. I think um, it, it's even the, the science of it itself, since I think 2012 to 2017, we've had about 13,000 uh, publications on the topic of what you just mentioned, the, the gut microbiome, the gut flora. That plus how much uh, the wellness movement has kind of jumped on board in terms of everyone looking at their diet and knowing what to do. It's just this perfect little intersection. And uh, now it's all about all things gut. So, yeah, great, great for you. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's okay, I guess. <laughs> um, we'll probably touch on about how much of that uh, reportage is misinformation and how much is uh, useful to us uh, coming up. Um, let's start with a couple of uh, Gastro 101 yep. basics. What does a gastroenterologist pay most attention to? Okay, so really people come to see us when they're sick with a gut-related issue, stomach, small intestine, large intestine. I mean, people don't know what's wrong with them, but you you might experience diarrhoea, constipation, bloating, pain. And if you feel like your GP can't help you or your GP is concerned that something more serious is at play, they'll make a referral uh, to see someone like me. Um, and so that's that's what a gastroenterologist deals with. We, we also deal with disorders of the pancreas and liver, and they're, they're interwined with, with the intestines anyway. But um, that's what a gastroenterologist does. We deal with disorders of the liver, pancreas, intestine and stomach. Um, and mostly by referral, or will people it, come and find you? Straight no, so, I mean, I think I mean the, the nature of the Australian health system is in order to see a specialist, you have to have a referral from yep. a general practitioner. So, all, all by referral. Yeah. And what are you coming across mostly at the moment? What's yeah. what's going on? Well, okay. Even though there's been an explosion about gut health and wellness and microbiome and interest in gut bacteria. Um, people still present to us uh, with the same problems, okay, which are symptoms of pain, bloating, diarrhoea, um, blood in their stools, whatever the case may be. So, so the reasons why they come uh, are exactly the same, but what's changed for us recently is the conversations are different. Mm. So people say, well, is my bloating because I've got an imbalance of a particular bacteria or is it because I'm eating food X, Y and Z? So, so the conversation is entirely different to what it was, say, 10 years ago. Now, admittedly, I wasn't a gastroenterologist 10 years ago, but mm. um, even in the last year or two, very quickly, there's been a very big change in the conversations that patients have with us. Yeah, Is that conversation uh, correlated to a change in something else, whether that be diet or lifestyle, or is it just that people are reporting it more and differently? So there's two factors why the conversation's different. I don't think they're anything to do with disease changes, okay? So one thing that's changed is, yes, we've just had a brief discussion about the fact that gut bacteria and general gut health and how that intersects with gut bacteria is a really popular topic for people. There are millions of books, Facebook groups, wellness websites, and and, and you see it. uh, We were talking about this just before the show started, like my sushi shop used to have two lines of racks of Coke or Coke Zero. It's now completely changed to kombucha, right? So <laughs> this, is, this is change in what people are interested in, what people want to do with their gut. So that, that's one of the reasons why people come and have a different discussion with us. The second issue is food is a really 
big factor that we know changes gut symptoms, uh, but had, there's been a, a great a significant awareness and a lot of studies that have been done about modifying your diet to treat your gut symptoms. And, and actually much of that has been developed out of Melbourne. Um, and so that's the reason why a discussion about food and a discussion about bacteria has been very different recently compared to, say, 10 years ago. Yeah. So maybe we can just uh, establish a bit of a base here, a common understanding about the talk about guts and bacteria yeah. and the flora. So if you could perhaps briefly explain, you know, what is this gut microbiome, gut flora that we're all talking about? Okay. So your intestines or really anything from your stomach all the way down to your anus... Anyway, but uh, look, there's trillions of bacteria, viruses, fungi, and other matter um, that live in there, okay? Um, and it's a dynamic beast. So it's not the same every day, and then you take some antibiotics, and then it changes to another state. In fact, it changes on an hour-by-hour basis. It changes on a day-by-day basis. It changes by what you eat. It changes by the medications you have. It changes when you're stressed. Mm. It changes um, when you've moved to a different environment. It changes when you buy a pet. It changes when you live with a, a, a different housemate. Mm. So so this, this uh, population of bacteria lives within our gut. We've sort of been aware of this for a long time, but what we haven't been aware of is its impact... On health, mm. and that's where a lot of the science has just started to come out, and that's probably why there's been such a significant amount of studies looking into this, uh, in, in looking into this area. And so, um, uh, yeah, so there have been really important scientific studies. I, I guess we can talk about in, shortly. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, the special attention seems to be paid to the fact that the gut, as we've traditionally been taught, the bacteria is there to kind of for an immune function to to protect us from other bacteria, maybe help us digest a few things. But new attention is being paid to the fact that the gut can produce hormones or regulate the release of hormones, which affect completely different parts of the body. We haven't traditionally thought about the gut being this hormonal endocrine type uh, organ, but it's clearly affecting lots of systems in the body. So so that's true. And it's not just hormones. It probably has an impact on general bodily immune function okay we actually don't really truly understand how it does it but there is probably there are some signals that there's probably some some effect on that um it probably has an impact uh, especially when we're babies or children how how our immune system develops to learn tolerance to things Mm -hmm. um and yeah as you point out with the with the idea of hormones it it may or may not have an impact on things like obesity and the development of of conditions like inflammatory bowel disease crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis which is an area that you pay special attention to yeah yeah so uh, look all gastroenterologists are slightly different we all have different interests so one of my interests and and subspecialty uh is managing patients with inflammatory bowel disease ulcerative colitis and crohn's disease and the other thing is functional gut disorders so irritable bowel syndrome bloating constipation things like that we're shortly going to be able to get on the phone um, one of your uh, patients, yep. um, one of your clients, um, Bobby. Um, and we're so grateful that Bobby's coming on because um, it's probably not a topic that a lot of people get to hear from somebody who's um, experienced the consultations that you're providing. Can you just set up for us uh, uh, where you are, where you and Bobby uh, cross paths? Yeah. So I am a scientist as well, if you if you want to call it that. Um, I'm one of uh, three gastroenterologists in a clinical trial where we're examining the use of faecal transplants, so taking someone else's gut micro 
biota or bacteria through their poo and transplanting into patients who have a particular condition. So in our trial, it's for patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Um, and although Bobby's not my patient patient, um, I, she's part of the trial. Um, and um, so I, I've known Bobby from, from that capacity. And so um, that's how, that's how uh, Bobby and I met. We've, uh, we've been involved in this clinical trial, examining, transplanting someone else's, someone healthy's poo, okay, uh, into someone who has a, a disease. And Bobby, I guess, can explain a bit about that. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> You're on radiotherapy um, with myself, Panel Beta, and Dr. Sharma, our guest, Dr. Chamara Basnaiki. And we have on the phone a really and really, really wonderful to have um, Bobby with us. Bobby um, has joined the trials um, that uh, Chamara has been involved with. And we're really pleased to welcome you, Bobby. How are you? Can you hear us? Good. Yes, ah, I can. I'm good. How are you? Really, really good. We do appreciate you coming on and talking about your experience. Um, let's start from the very beginning. Did you just wake up one morning with an upset stomach and go from there, or what was it? Yeah, so um, I was 20, and my parents had gone away because um, I'm actually originally from the UK. So they'd gone back to the UK to visit some family, and I... Um, just had a sore stomach and I noticed um, blood when I went to the toilet and yeah, then I was sent for a colonoscopy and diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Whoa. Uh, so was it painful at the time? Like, I mean, my no. foot, yeah. I think yeah, most people no, try and play things down, don't they? Yeah, so I know I hadn't had any pain. I hadn't had any, I was dancing full time so I might, might have had weight loss but I didn't recognise it so I was just, yeah, I just had blood when I went to the toilet. So um, I was sent for a colonoscopy because they thought I might have had polyps. But, yeah, it turned out it was ulcerative colitis. So, Bobby, what was that like, going from someone who was clearly functioning really well, you hadn't even noticed, you were well, dancing heaps, and then being told you've got this thing, ulcerative colitis, people haven't even heard of what this is. What did that feel like at the time? At the time, I had no idea what it was. So I was just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Um, it's not like it's nothing, it's not a big deal. And for about two years, I just went on as normal and just dealt with the pain that did eventually come with it um, and the symptoms. But then the more that I, you know, went into the illness, I guess, and started to live with it, the harder it became and to what was and what was it like, you know, getting the symptoms then getting worse and then obviously being told and understanding that it's not something that modern medicine has a cure for per se? Like, what was that like? I can't describe it. It's like you think, oh, I'm so lucky that it's not um, as bad as what other people have, but at the same time it's horrendous that I've gone from knowing what it's like to live a completely normal life to now having to change everything about my life because my life is completely different. If you don't mind uh, sharing, what were the kind of changes you had to make? Because, of course, uh, with patients with inflammatory bowel disease, apart from the pain itself, it's also just uncontrollable. You're having to go to the toilet, which it, it must yes. mean rearranging so much of your existence. Yeah, so my entire life revolves, still to this day, revolves around knowing where every toilet is. So if you need to know where a toilet is, you can come to me. Um, <laughs> right. I know where all the public toilets are. Um, I need to carry, like, Buscapan and Panadol, um, I had at one point severe anxiety that I wouldn't leave the house. Um, like 
today talking on the radio, for instance, was like anxiety because I was like, oh my gosh, what happens if I need to go to the toilet while I'm on the phone? I'm like, I never need to do that. So why would that even be a thing? So like little things that people take for granted become a huge deal. It's so great we're getting a complete picture of what that's like because, uh, you know, firstly, it's not something that a lot of patients want to speak about. So we're, we're so grateful that you're being open with your, with your experiences. So, Bobby, um, you mentioned that this was uh, 70 years ago now where it first started becoming part of your life. Um, what changes have you noticed in terms of the way you're dealing with the health system and the doctors that you're meeting? Yeah, so I've had, I think, four or five specialists since I was diagnosed um, and I've noticed since moving to St. Vincent's um, and um, being under Chamara and Professor Cam that I have, well, one, a newfound love for and ad- admiration for nurses and doctors, but also just the advances in medical, um, you know, in medicine. So, you know, FMT wasn't even a really a thing when I was first diagnosed or like the infusions I've never heard of them and just the knowledge like I could listen to the specialist talk for hours just they're so knowledgeable um so yeah there's definitely every year there's something new so it's awesome Chamara, that might be your cue what how would you characterize the change over those seven years so I mean Bobby's pointed out probably everything that's completely relevant here. So we basically had very simple old medications that were around for ulcerative colitis for something like 20 years, and then suddenly we had a a couple of new fairly major developments, um, medications that are quite expensive actually, uh, and so we have to go through a lot of hurdles for our patients to get it, but the government does provide it, and and they're quite effective for patients with ulcerative colitis and and the other inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease. And now um, we're just on the verge of several other developments in this space, so faecal transplantation, Mm -hmm. okay? And the second uh, thing is also diet, so modifying the food you eat uh, to potentially reduce inflammation in your gut, because that's the problem with these conditions. It's inflammation of the gut that actually causes the symptoms. So, Bobby, Chamara comes, you know, crosses parts of you and then presumably tells you about this thing called a, a faecal transplant, this, this poo transplant. Well, what did that sound like at the time? It sounds just like, like some, sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? Yeah, it definitely does. So I'd heard about it a few years prior to, um, to having it and I was like, oh my gosh, no way, that is disgusting. I'm not doing that. And then I got so sick that I was like, I'll just give me all the poo. I'll have it. <laughs> all the poo, all right. All the poo, do it. Smart man. There's the headline. And so tell us, what was that like going through the process? Well, it can be whatever you make of it. So um, I could either be like, this is disgusting, I hate it, it's horrible, I don't want to do it. Or I could be like, this is hilarious and I'm going to make take photos and document it. So that's what I did. <laughs> wow. I've got to check out your Instagram. A, is this an Instagram thing? No, I didn't share on Instagram. It was more so for myself and I'd send it to my mum and be like, Breaking Bad, part one. And she's like, you are an absolute nut. <laughs> Jamara, what is the uh, what is the procedure? What is the um, treatment? Yeah, so there's several ways you can do faecal transplants, um, and so at this point in time, as a part of our clinical trial, it, it involves administering poo that's been processed. So we find a donor. There's a discussion about that we can have, but so you get a donor's poo, uh, you process it in a laboratory, and then you um, 
use a colonoscopy or, or a gastroscopy to then administer the poo directly into the, the, the affected area. And this can then be potentially followed up by treatments at home, but ultimately that's the basic principle of, of what a faecal transplant is. So the idea being that you take bacteria, I guess, micro, uh, microbial organisms from a healthy donor and then you give it to someone who needs them in theory and so the good microbiota then grow in, in someone uh, like Bobby? Yeah, right. So, so this is the thing. So we know one of the things that we understand about ulcerative colitis in particular uh, is that the gut bacteria probably stimulates your immune system to attack your intestines. So if you swap the bacteria, let's just keep it simple, um, uh, then you might not have that same inflammatory effect. So suddenly your immune system doesn't recognise the the bacteria that it it was sensitive to and and, and it stops. So that's the theory behind faecal transplantation in in these particular conditions, yeah. Okay. um, just you mentioned the donor, so um, like uh, organ transplant, etc. There must be some kind of screening process. And one of our Facebook followers has come up with that question. You know, how do you go about screening? Okay, so the screening process is very, very rigorous. Um, so in the states, they have a stool bank. Okay, and, and so this is the largest stool bank in the world. And what they do is they advertise to the general population asking for stool donors, and of the people who nominate themselves who think they're healthy enough to be a donor, so this is already a subgroup right. of people, yeah. only 6% of them will actually pass the screening process. So this is wow. tests of poo, tests of blood. You have to have the same sexual partner for the last six months. You uh, you have to have a BMI between um, in, a, in a healthy range. Yeah. So this is not an easy thing to find. Is there any other um, profile, common denominator in those in that 6%? What, what do you mean by that? Like, is there um, is it typically younger people, older people? Is no, it yeah. people who so, so, have a particular kind of diet? No, so it's typically younger people because younger people are healthier, and typically younger, healthier people. No, 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 it's not. It has never been profiled for diet. If we start taking six percent and then asking them to eat a particular type of food, you'll find zero percent. It's 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 just too difficult um, at this point in time to choose the right bacteria with the right donor. We just try to find a safe donor. Yep. So but this also means people who have never had or don't have psychological symptoms. I mean we anxiety and depression are incredibly common in the population. So right. anyone who has anxiety and depression cannot be a donor. Right. right. So this is the reason why it is impossible, uh, not impossible, it's very hard to find donors for this particular treatment. If somebody wants to be a donor, mm-hmm. what do they do? So... How do they know about it? I, I, can't, I can't remember seeing any TV ads. Yeah, right. So we don't have... So actually, I, well, let me rephrase that. There is one stool bank uh, in Australia at this stage that's been established and that's in South Australia and the stool bank is used for faecal transplants for a particular condition called Clostridium difficile it's when this bacteria um, overpopulates in your gut and causes symptoms of diarrhoea and it usually happens after antibiotics and a faecal transplant usually cures that condition Um, and they I don't know how they advertise but but, um, we we don't our clinical trial does not involve general population people to, to donate so we don't involve that. Yet. Hey Bobby, what sort of questions were on your mind um, when you were being told about donors etc? Oh I already knew who I was having as a donor. Oh did I you? I walked in and I was like my husband has a cast iron gut so he's my donor. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. That must have been part of the reassurance for you right? I Definitely. I think um, 
I mean, if I had to do it a second time around, it wouldn't bother me. But the first time, if it would have been someone that I didn't know, I know that the screening I would have trusted 110%. But I think it would have made it a little bit harder treatment-wise not knowing the person, I guess. I don't know, just mentally for me. Um, So I I think it helped me make a joke of it, having my husband as a donor. what, What sort of questions were on his mind from the donor's perspective? Pretty much just how does he collect the stool? Otherwise, he didn't really care. He really, was all on board. <laughs> okay, now we've heard about the poop smoothie. Do you want to? Yes. Do you want to talk us through what that means? Well, it's that's how. Like, it's just an yeah. It's just a smoothie of poop. <laughs> No, you're going um, to need to. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about a kitchen blender, though, are we? No. So. I mean, you, I mean, you could, but I don't know that that's very sanitary. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it'd jam up the Nutribullet. I don't think it'd. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think it would definitely, definitely wouldn't go down the Nutribullet. Tomorrow? Have- so I, I, I should just interrupt slightly for a second. I mean, one of the reasons uh, Bobby and I spoke about this actually uh, a couple of days ago before this interview, we don't want to talk too much about how you prepare something like this at home. It's for, for several reasons. One, it's um, sort of, I guess, the ethics approval for our trial meant that this is sort of kept in-house. And, and the second reason is actually a lot of people try to do this at home. They shouldn't. It's not safe. Um, and we don't want to sort of publicly discuss um, how to do something like this, which is potentially very dangerous at home, which is the reason why um, Bobby is being evasive. No, that's fine. Know, which is also why we're not yeah. asking about yeah. you know, yeah. what, all the wonders is <laughs> yeah. for you. It's yeah. very important we keep in mind this yeah. is a trial. And... Part of the issue is that this is a new and exciting field, but it's also a very young field where you'll always see uh, doctors like Jamara and and people like Bobby who are involved in the trial being very cautious about the claims. Um, of course, there are a lot of other industries and professionals and people are selling books and TED Talks who are not being cautious at all. And uh, it's it's so tempting to, however. It may actually be worth uh, enumerating some of those risks, just to be clear. So... We don't know what the impact of changing someone's gut bacteria is, okay? Mm-hmm. So we know that, for example, if you took some mice, okay, and you were to transplant a healthy human stool uh, into a mouse and then you took a human that was anxious and you put their stool into the mice, the mice who get transmitted with the healthy human stool behave very, very, very differently. So th- th- this is just a small example of, of how changing gut bacteria can potentially have other consequences and which is why the donation process is so rigorous um and we don't want people to try this at home so to speak yeah yep. fair enough hey bobby it's been really fabulous talking to you really appreciate your um candid uh and sense of humor uh, telling of your story and <laughs> that's okay i want to raise awareness and people that have the illness let them know that it's it's, yeah, it can be horrible, but it can also be a blessing. <laughs> Good on you, Bobby. Thanks very much for being with us this morning. Thank you. Bye for now. Three. Triple. Ah. Welcome back to Radiotherapy. Panel Beater and Dr Sharma with our um, special guest, uh, Dr Chamara Basnaki. We're talking all things gut health. Um, Chamara, how about we um, take a look at diet and its relation to gut flora, gut health in general? Yeah. So there's a couple of things, I think. There's sort of two big parts to diet that we can talk about. One is people have gut symptoms. Maybe it's bloating, maybe it's diarrhoea, maybe it's constipation. And, and there are ways you can change your diet in order to improve those symptoms. So that's one part of gut health and diet that we could talk about. And the second thing, of course, is... 
eating particular foods to modify your gut bacteria with the theory that it might help health, okay? Mm. The actual thing is the second part is really popular. There's plenty of books out there about it, Facebook groups, whatever the case may be, but there's very little science about... uh, uh, I should say very little practical science uh, that that you can kind of take away from from, from what's been done about that. And that's the thing, isn't it? The the, the story's so captivating in terms of we're discovering these new mechanisms by which the gut's flora, the, 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 mark, the, the microbiota, can affect other parts of the body. But it's a far cry to go, well, because it produces this chemical or this hormone, well, that's going to affect you know, this organ and this organ's you know, gonna, going to improve this function in me. There's a lot of links in the chain uh, that need to kind of line up and we've just got no kind of proof of them linking. Yeah, that's right. And even more complicated than that is the science behind measuring gut bacteria is not even there yet. We've actually sort of skyrocketed light years ahead from where we were five years ago, but we're still light years away. So this is the... So, for example, if I was... Fionn, if I was to test your poo today and then Mm. test your poo tomorrow, Mm. it would be different. The Mm. bacteria would be entirely different. If I was to test your poo and do a colonoscopy, take a biopsy of your intestine, look at the bacteria that's actually fixed to your intestine, that would be different Mm. to the the one in the poo, right? And say you ate, I don't know, KFC the night before, your bacteria will be different. The problem is... um, It's such a dynamic moving beast on a day-by-day basis um, that actually it's very difficult to kind of pin it down and figure out which bacteria are implicated. And even more than that, the machines that measure the bacteria, it depends what... It's almost like the library, the Dewey Decibel system that you'll have (laughs) to kind of determine which bacteria are what based on what code you get from the machine is different depending on where you test it. And different, and, and there's many bacteria that are missed simply because of this system. So, so that that doesn't even include the viruses um, and fungi and, and other. Uh, uh, and that's exactly right. There, there's so many other parts of this. So we're excited because we're we're looking at something that appears to be an important part of human function but we're only scratching the surface. And it's so interesting because so much of the, the kind of pop science conversation tends to be about how do, I, how do I change my gut flora, my microbiome, but we can't even pin it down to what it is at any one given point in time. Yep. That's exactly right. And you know what, though? Of what little science we have done in this area. Now, we haven't looked at health outcomes necessarily, so if I eat this food, it changes my gut bacteria to this profile, which we know is generally either good or bad. We can kind of do something basic like that. But does that actually change who you are later on down the track? We haven't done that. But what we know so far is all of the old-fashioned adages, if you just eat healthy food, fruit and vegetables, okay, have a higher-than-usual-fibre diet, they all tend to be things that improve your, your gut bacteria to a profile that appears to be healthy. Whether it actually makes a difference, we don't even know. But but hmm. but that that has held true. Right. So let's go with some specifics. You know, we're hearing a lot of um, that fermented foods. You know, yeah. kombucha, um, kimchi, sauerkraut, sourdough, etc. Mm-hmm. Where, where do we go with that? So let's take kombucha for for an example. Um, one group in the states looked at every single study that's been examined up until 2018 uh, on kombucha. They found not a single study that compared kombucha or fake kombucha, a placebo, mm. okay, and its impact on health, okay? They found one study that actually measured any form of health outcome. So, so most of the studies with kombucha as an example, this is just one separate example, okay, um, 
actually haven't even looked at its basic impact on health. They've looked at it on mouse models, they've looked at it on just a general change in bacteria, but what it actually means to a person, they haven't looked at. But yet, nonetheless, as I said, my sushi place has now two lines of kombucha uh, for $6 a pop if you want. And I mean, this is so frustrating because, like you're saying, this stuff, kombucha is everywhere. It's marketed on the basis that this is going to improve your health, and yet you're saying this is exactly the kind of study that is not being done. It's, it seems almost deliberate. It's almost like they're going to they find it, it's probably not as beneficial as they're claiming, and it's, it's, it's quite frustrating. We don't know, of course, but that's why we've got to do the trials. Yeah, that's right. And, and I suppose, you know, in the end, do we need to do the trials? So this is, this is a probably a more important question. I suppose if there are lots of patients out there who are ill with serious illnesses, who are drinking litres of kombucha to help them, well, then actually, yes, we do need to do the trials because there's a serious public health question here. But you know what? If you're, you've got a health bent, you want to have some kombucha, have some kombucha, mm. okay? And if you feel better as a result of it, you feel better. That's great. That's fine. Do, do what you like. I think that's okay. Yeah. And does the same go for kimchi, sauerkraut, etc.? So br- broadly, so, so kimchi and sauerkraut, I mean, that, we're talking about cabbage in, in general, and that's, mm. that's generally healthy. But then some people, I had a patient once um, who was really interested in gut health and the food that she was eating. And, and what she did was she would eat a kilo of sauerkraut a day to improve her gut health. But she was seeing me and my team because of gut symptoms. Right. So, but the issue is cabbage, actually. It breaks down into your intestines and actually causes a, a molecule that actually then expands your intestines, causes you pain and bloating. Stop the sauerkraut, she got better. Okay, so, so you know, there, there, there's a balance here, okay? Um, as a separate example, kombucha's pH can actually excrete heavy metals if it's sort of kept in tin cans. And so potentially there's some negative effects from kombucha as an example. Like, this is sort of broad. Mm. You know, if you just sort of look at things in isolation and not really think about it, there's potentially some negative effects from some, some of these foods, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that's kind of the concern because on one hand, this is an incur- incredibly encouraging field of science with some, some, some really surprising results. On the other hand, it is such a young field. Yeah, that doesn't seem to deter, I guess, people who want to, uh, to, to co-opt the language of the science to sell whatever they want to sell. Um, and this could be people who are selling foods or diet books or you know, uh, health practitioners, you know, uh, alternative health practitioners perhaps, uh, who are selling their therapies based on these things. But also... Um, you know, leaving kind of profits and everything aside, if you're someone who wants to improve your health and you're being sold this narrative of, uh, you know, you eat this, my gut's going, flora is going to be healthier, it's going to improve this condition and that condition and everything else, you start kind of experimenting on yourself and, and soon you, it's, it's very easy to get very neurotic about mm-hmm. your own diet and eat, you know, end up eating far much more of cabbage than you ever, you know, should have or plan to or far less of other foods that you think that are actually are causing you problems so this actually is probably even more relevant for people with actually gut symptoms okay so many people with gut symptoms uh, will try diets or exclude foods that they think contribute to their symptoms and there are foods that have been proven in trials that can can contribute to symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome for example but the problem is, this has now left a lot of patients only eating a handful of foods that come and see us as gastroenterologists and say, look, I've still got problems. Um, I've cut out gluten. I've cut out garlic. I've cut out onion. I've cut out FODMAP foods. I, I, and, and you can't blame them, okay? So gastroenterologists have been pushing this field. Dietitians have been pushing this field. If you go to any store, not just a health food store, there's stamps, okay, explaining which what type of food, you know, gluten-free is, is, is now bigger than ever. Low FODMAP foods have stamped. Uh, but it actually leaves 
people with symptoms potentially down a, a rabbit hole, okay, where they're not eating enough food. And that, that in itself is also dangerous. And that's where you mentioned um, fibre and water, uh, but variety becomes crucial, right? So, so variety, vegetables, fruit, and yeah, water and fibre. That, yeah. That's all. That's yeah. that actually that has ended up being true. Problem is, I can't sell my new diet book based on that <laughs> old ancient solid advice. Yeah. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. We're shortly coming to the end of radiotherapy for this morning. It's panel beta, Dr. Sharma, and our uh, special guest, Dr. Chamara Bazniaki. Um, just to bring us home, just a couple of things. Also off our Facebook um, comments was regarding antibiotics and the impact that's having on, on gut health. So this is... We've gone for an hour about this. Um, look... I mean, ultimately, it's a balance. Okay, if you need antibiotics for a serious condition, you need to have antibiotics. There's this, forget about your gut bacteria. You can die if you don't have antibiotics in certain conditions. Okay, but maybe one of the reasons why certain conditions have developed, potentially conditions like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, may have been because of early use of antibiotics in in people um, that have altered their gut bacteria and caused this immune dysfunction. So, so that's a theory that's out there. But you know what? When a doctor prescribes antibiotics to a child, typically it's for a good reason. Mm. So if you think you're going to stop your child from having antibiotics because you're concerned about this particular thing, I'd... I'd Go with the antibiotics. Go with the antibiotics, unfortunately, yeah. Um, uh, To use the vitamin analogy, we've heard people say just vitamins, just supplements, Mm. just add up to expensive wee. What about about probiotic uh, pills? So, you know... Broadly speaking, my feeling based on the science um, is that it is, is again, the same thing, sort of expensive we. Because if you look at the gut bacteria, Microbiome, your gut bacteria is a trillion microbes. It, it's sort of like sprinkling a bit of salt on on the sand of the beach, okay, and then licking the sand and saying, "Oh, am I, is this a bit more saltier than usual?" That's the problem with probiotics, okay. Um, look, if you feel better with your probiotics, then great, you can take it and do whatever you like. But it's it's your choice. But um, it, it, it's un- it hasn't been as effective as as we would have liked for certain conditions. Yeah. Mm. It'd be remiss of us not to let the listeners know how we cross paths, and that was in relation to the Gut Feelings exhibition at Museums Victoria. What can you tell us about what's going on there? So this is an exhibit that Bobby and I um, and one of my colleagues, Dr Amy Wilson-O'Brien, were lucky to be a part of. It's an exhibit that Melbourne Museum uh, is having on essentially gut bacteria and and, and health related to to the gut. Um, So uh, when and if you have time... uh, Go and have a look. I'm just uh, looking for the details. So it um, it's going right until next February. So there's plenty of time. Plenty of but time, there's yeah. rolling events, aren't there, that are on for selected periods of time? Yeah, I I, I, I think so. I have to admit, I'm, I'm not aware of the rolling <laughs> events, but but yes, yes. Go and have a look. Um, and we've still got a, a minute up our sleeve just to hear. Maybe if you could do your crystal balling for for the next uh, for just for another minute or so before we uh, run out of time. Um, what do you see in the immediate future? So I think in the, probably in the next five years, you'll probably have about another maybe 100 good trials that will come out for things like fecal transplants and potentially particular diets to improve patients with particular gut conditions, not general healthy people who want to improve their diet. Unfortunately, we don't do that that much. Um, and we'll have a bit more answers in five years' time. Will we have cures? I hope so, but I don't think so, unfortunately. Um, but this is the reason why we're looking into this. Sure. Okay, so people like Bobby don't have to worry about where the next toilet is yeah. and that their life isn't controlled by their gut. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.